Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast. I'm Dave Sharp, Marketing Consultant for Architects at VanityProjects.com. Today, I'm joined by Ian Motley from Blue Turtle Consulting. Ian and his team help business owners in the architecture and construction industry to improve their fee proposals, increase their conversion rates, and raise their fees. In this episode, we discuss why architects should start providing different pricing options in their fee proposals, how to avoid potential clients haggling over your fees, some of the ways that you can increase the quality of service you provide by offering premium services in your fee matrix, the psychology of clients during the buying process, and how they perceive the value of what an architect does, the importance of focusing on a niche if you're looking to grow, and why it's important to dream big and develop a vision for where you'd like your practice to be in the years to come. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Ian Motley from Blue Turtle Consulting. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. No worries. Uh, I thought maybe we would start off with a little bit of a background on Blue Turtle, what what you've been doing over the last 11, 12 years, uh, maybe a little bit of your kind of career before that, but but what, what do you guys do at Blue Turtle? Yeah. Um, okay. So, for the last 10 years, we've been training, or 11 years now, we've been training architects, design professionals, um, how to write a successful fee proposal. And we do this by showing them how to implement a strategy which uh, behavioral finance experts would call choice architecture. Economists would call it second or third degree um, price discrimination. So there's various different names for the approach that we promote, uh, but that's what we do. That's what you guys do. So firms, uh, architects approach you. So all different sort of scales. I mean, your fee proposal strategy, uh, do you have like a a type of kind of core client or is it kind of the whole range from small to big? Yeah, well, we work mostly with small to medium-sized firms. So we work with a lot of sole practitioners and partners who work, you know, in their own partnership. Um, So I'd say predominantly 80, 90% of the people we work with are probably in firms of one to 30 people. And I would say majority of those are probably in the one to 10 people in the firm category. So yeah, it's small to medium-sized firms. Yeah. And so, as, as far as their brief goes, I mean, when they're coming to you and they're coming out of the woodwork, what's the situation look like in their practice by the time they finally reach out for help? What's what's kind of going on for them that is becoming sort of, is, is it about it becoming quite painful and quite difficult in the business or are they kind of more curious and exploring what are the opportunities? I'm guessing it's kind of more of that first camp, but, you know, maybe yeah. tell me a little bit more about the typical situation that you kind of find an architect in when they come to your door? Yeah, typically architects are going to be in business for some time because they get to that point where they're just frustrated with constantly working and not sort of ever getting ahead, financially speaking. So they have to feel that pain typically before they come to us. They have to realize there's a problem because obviously when you're you're fresh and new out of college, when you're new out of that first job and you start your own business, you're full of enthusiasm and you believe that if you get published, if you win some awards, you believe that will be enough to really uh, project your career and your company, your firm into the stratosphere. Unfortunately, life's not quite like that. As a famous negotiator, Chester L. Carras once said, in life, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. And that's what we find. So essentially, 
typical client of ours would have been in business, running their own business for maybe five, maybe 10 years, sometimes even longer, but usually about that time. And they sit there and think, you know, I can't continue like this. I need to change something. I need to have my value appreciated. Um, I need to somehow work out how to get paid more for what I do and, and, and the value that I bring to the table. And the current approach that you know I'm using isn't working for me. I now realize that, so I need to change something. So that's typically the, the type of client that comes to us. Yeah. And so so they're noticing some issues in terms of their value not being appreciated. Is that basically they're finding that they're not able to kind of ask for, you know, reasonable fees in their proposals? They're getting rejected, even putting in sort of average or below average kind of rates in their mind or, you know, they're finding that their proposals aren't getting accepted. Is it a sort of an acceptance issue? Like what, what are some of the main things that are really kind of <laughs> yeah. punching them in the gut and going, you know, this is, this is tough. So look, the, the problem is none of us are actually taught during our formal, you know, um, training during our, during our degrees as an architect, as an interior designer, as a design professional, you're typically not taught about the world of business, about pricing models. And so inevitably we all adopt the same pricing model in our approach and this is a pricing model that economists would refer to as first-degree price discrimination, okay? We recommend using second- or third-degree price discrimination, but most design professionals are using first. Now, as a design professional, you don't need to know the name of the pricing model you're using. What you need to know is the pricing model you've adopted relies on negotiation to secure the sale. And that's the problem. Because we've all adopted this model, which is relying on negotiation, we end up negotiating. And inevitably, our fee becomes smaller than we originally asked for. It gets reduced. And that's the frustrating part. And then we start to feel like nobody actually values good yeah. design. Nobody values the skill set that we bring to the table. Um, and that's not the case. The, the, the problem is the pricing model we're using to sell our service isn't the best model uh, yeah. nowadays uh, now we're in a very highly competitive market. It's a model that worked very well 30, 40 years ago, especially when we had fee scales and things like that. But nowadays in a highly competitive market, first degree price combination is not the best model to use. Yeah. And so just to simplify things a little bit, that first degree price discrimination, is that basically the idea of presenting one price to a, to a, pro, to a prospective client? Is that the, where exactly. the first degree comes in? You're just showing them kind of one option and going, here's my price. Yeah, it's the typical approach of working out what the client wants. So you define a scope, you then price that scope, you then hand the client a proposal, a standard proposal, something you've downloaded from the internet, maybe you've got from one of your <laughs> yeah. local design groups or something, yeah. and you put your number in it and you're giving it to the client. And then what happens because first degree relies on negotiation, the client gets your proposal, they don't know if it's a high fee, it's a low fee, they don't know what's reasonable. You don't even know what's reasonable anymore. As a design professional, you don't know what you should be charging. So they don't know. So they solicit other proposals. Eventually, they end up with three to choose from, and they end up starting the negotiation process. And mm. that's when we start to begin you know, to feel undervalued. And we wonder, why is it that in our industry, um, we go through this heavy negotiation? When you wouldn't negotiate as heavily, or you wouldn't negotiate at all with other professionals. For example, it's just people laugh when I say, you know, imagine negotiating with your doctor, mm. you know, or your dentist, <laughs> or even your lawyer, you know, would you negotiate with your lawyer? So, <laughs> you know, people quite, quite often laugh at that. But 
people will openly and easily negotiate with architects and, and interior designers and so forth. So why is that? You know, it's because of the pricing model we're using. It is encouraging yeah. the negotiation process. Yeah. And the reason this is because nobody knows how much anything should cost, right? As human beings, we all believe we're very good at judging price and we're very good at judging value. But in reality, we're not. What we're very good at doing as human beings is we're very good at comparing and contrasting. And it's that comparing and contrasting process that allows us to believe that we're very good at judging value. But we're not. And the result of this is when a client gets your proposal and there's a fee for a scope of work, okay, they don't know if that's a good fee or a bad fee. You might have discounted it 10% already because you really want mm. the work because you don't, you know, a bit light on work at the moment. So you're trying to aggressively get it. But they don't know because they probably never hired a design professional before. So they don't know what they should charge. So obviously they solicit proposals from other design professionals, they end up with three numbers. And then they can compare and contrast. And that compare and contrasting process allows them to feel good about the decisions that they make, something yeah. they couldn't do if they got your fee in isolation. Yeah. So once again, that's why we wouldn't recommend that approach, the approach you know most of us are using. We would recommend a multi-fee approach. And economists would call a multi-fee approach a second or third degree price discrimination approach. Yeah. We'll get into sort of constructing that in a little bit. I'm just kind of interested in this idea that the the potential client feels compelled to have choices. They need choices, so they have to go looking for other options. And then so that provides them some sort of comfort and reassurance that they're not being ripped off, right? <laughs> like is that their, exactly. that's it. Well, the, I mean, yeah, the typical thing. Let's go get a couple of different quotes, right? It's a it's a it's an exercise in making sure you know, that there is some reasonableness to the price when you've got nothing else to compare it to. What, how do you know? So, so they're looking for that contrast. And then do they also, now the negotiation aspect that comes into play now that they do have multiple prices in front of them, that's when they suddenly become the negotiator, right? Because all of a sudden now they're spotting these differences and <laughs> going, hey, why is your fee a little bit more expensive than this other one? What's going on? Exactly. Um, as human beings, we need to feel good about the purchasing decisions we make. Okay. And one of the ways we can feel good as a client is let's say you end up with three proposals from three different competing design firms. One of them's at 10%, one of them's at 8%, and one of them's at 6%. As a human being, you associate price and quality. Mm. So you're going to subconsciously believe that the 10% is the best design service. Okay subconsciously yeah. in most situations. However, it's very difficult to just go and buy that service and feel good about it. It's a lot easier to feel good about it if you could negotiate that fee down a bit. And the <laughs> easiest way to do that, because as human beings, we look for the path of least resistance. What's the simplest, easiest way to do this? And the easiest thing to do is go to the design firm that's offering a 10% service and say to them, look, there's a firm down the road that's willing to do this project for half the fee you're asking for. Would you like to reconsider your proposal?" Mm. Okay. Now, as a design professional, if we had just written that number on a napkin and it taken us 10 seconds, we wouldn't be very invested in that project or that client. So our keenness, our eagerness to negotiate wouldn't be that great. We'd have, we'd be more capable of saying, no, we're not prepared to negotiate. However, because design professionals are using a first degree price discrimination, that's not the case. By the time they actually write the proposal and send it to the client, they've usually spent at least 10 hours <laughs> trying to win that project. They usually had a phone call with the client to start off with to see if they're a good fit. Secondly, they've met the client on site. So they've driven out to site. They've talked about the site. They've tried to impress them. 
Then they've had to drive back to the office. Then they've had to write a proposal. Then they've had to send that proposal to the client in an email. Then they've had to follow up the following week with another email saying, did you get my proposal? And then they probably followed up again the following week with another email. So by that time, the, the architect, the design professional, is very invested in winning the project because they've already spent 10 hours plus doing all those things to try and win the client. So when they get told by the client, there's a firm down the road that's willing to do this for half the fee, would you like to reconsider? The automatic response from the design professional is, well, yeah, I would like to take another look at my proposal, see if there's anything I could do to sharpen my pencil, because I'm invested now. Mm-hmm. I'm involved. I've spent time on it. I really need to win this project. And if, if it just means reducing my fee a little bit to win it, then I am prepared to do that because I want to win it. And this is the other problem with first-degree price discrimination. It sets us up for negotiation, and it sets us up to commit to the client rather than the client committing to us. Yeah. Okay, so we want to try and avoid getting into that um, negotiation position. So we want to have this second and third-degree price discrimination. We'll talk about that in a second, (laughs) but I just (laughs) want to stop there and kind of dig a little bit deeper. So... Is the goal, I'm getting the sense that the goal is to really at all costs avoid that situation where you're being compared to other architects up and down the road, right? Is that, I mean, if you'll reach that, are you pretty much stuck if you you end up in that situation or the situation you just described, can you still kind of get yourself out of that situation fairly, like is there a, uh, a prudent way to approach that situation where that client has come to you and said, Hey, um, you know, guy down the street's half the price. Are you willing to, you know, review your fees there? Yeah. So, look, we can't control what the client does. They can go and ask two other design professionals. They're going to ask 10. We can't necessarily have control over that. So that is what it is. Okay. It's nice if they don't, but we can't control it, right? So what we are recommending, what we spent, you know, over a decade training architects to do is say, well, look, at the moment, you're being judged on fee and fee alone. Okay, because you put a fee on the table for a scope of work and then your competitors have done the same thing. And the question becomes, well, what's the difference? You've all won awards. You've all got experience. Why pay more if I don't have to? You know, so that's why the negotiation. So what we're suggesting is, look, you know, there's a competition down the road that's going to charge less or whatever. So it's your job to communicate why the client may want to spend more. And then you allow them to have an informed decision so that they know the benefits if they spend more. And that's where a multi-fee approach, and for those of you who haven't heard of the term multi-fee, what we're suggesting is instead of putting one fee and one scope on the table, we're actually going to put two or maybe three different fees to choose from and different associated scopes of service. Mm -hmm. And we're going to say to the client in our own proposal, look, we could do this project, (laughs) you know, maybe it's, Maybe we can't go down as low as 6%, but maybe we can do it for 8%, we can do it for 10%, or we can do it for 12%. Because the more time I spend on this project, the better service I can provide you with. But I don't know if you can afford, you know, the full premium service that we offer. So you can still involve us in the project, and there is a more economical approach, if you'd like. But I want to show you in the proposal what the differences would be, so that now when you receive my proposal, and what I would do is I would include those fees, not in long, lengthy scopes of service, but I would include the different fee and service options in what we call a fee matrix. Mm. So it's a very simple table within my proposal that clients can flick to. And and this is what's going to happen. When a client receives your proposal, they're going to expect one number probably, right? 
So they're going to flick open your browser, and they're not going to read the scope. Nobody ever reads the scope. The first mm. thing they want to know is, should they even bother wasting any time? What are <laughs> yeah. your fees? So they flick through it. They're going to expect one number, but all of a sudden they're going to see a beautiful, very nicely crafted, very simple fee matrix or a table is a simpler way of explaining yeah. it. And it's going to have three different fees there. And the immediate thing the client is going to think when they see those three different fees, immediately they think, well, what is the difference? Mm. You know, why are you giving me three fees to choose from or two fees to four, whatever it is? Why are you doing that? Now, if you respond to that answer by giving them lengthy scopes of service to read through, cross-reference, compare, you're going to lose them, right? Yeah. So we don't. We use our fee matrix, and it very quickly explains the differences. And the more efficient, the better we get at creating those fee matrices, um, then the more effective we come as a, become as a fee proposal writer. Yeah. So essentially, we're now we're not saying you can't compare us to others. But we're saying when you do compare us, if you are looking for an affordable fee, well, we have one and we're going to show you why it's more affordable. If you are looking for a more expensive service, a high quality service, then we have one. And let me show you why it's more expensive. So it takes the discussion one up from one of simply fee to one of fee and the service being offered, which is exactly what we want our clients to do. We want them to understand why we're different, why they should potentially pay a little bit more for design services. Yeah. In terms of those points of difference in the fee matrix or those different levers or knobs that you can kind of turn and go, you get more of this and less of this, like more leg room and a nicer dinner, <laughs> you know, but whatever. Um, are there certain are there certain services or um, aspects of what architects do that tend to communicate better when adjusted across those different tables in the matrix versus others, which might be the differences might be more unclear. I guess what I should say is, is there anything that when you go, you get, you know, one of these versus two of these versus three of these, whatever these things are, the the value difference is more clear cut or resonates a little bit more in your experience? Have you found anything that, that should be adjusted that sort of works there or works quite well? So, so look, there's, there's different horses for different courses, as yeah. they say. Um, it depends on your, your client type. So, for example, there's essentially five different ways we can present fees. We, we can, we can um, bundle, we can unbundle, we can upsell, we can cross-sell, we can version the services that we offer. All these are all different ways we can do it. So you need to understand what sort of client base am I you know, working with? Mm. What are my clients' main interests? So, for example, let's say you're working in the extension or addition to existing homes market. Yep. So, you know, 90% of your clients are looking for an addition to an existing home. These are people that are likely to be quite frugal on the design side because they've already got a home. They're just adding a little bit of extra room for their families, you know, for whatever reason. Mm. So they're probably not looking to spend a huge amount of money on it because if they had the money, they may well move to a bigger, better, you know, suburb, a better house or whatever, yep. but they're not. So it's perhaps more of a frugal approach, not every time, but, but sometimes. Um, and so the question becomes, okay, well, look, we're working with a frugal client. What sort of pricing strategy works best for frugal clients? If we are going to apply second or third degree, which one is best? Well, usually an unbundling fee, which is where you break your fee up into small amounts, works best with more frugal clients. But that's not the same. Let's say you're in a very high-end neighborhood. Let's say you're working in Chelsea and in West London, for example, um, you know, these clients aren't going to be so frugal because they've already spent <laughs> 5 million, 10 million on the house. Yep. So maybe they're looking to renovate that house um, for their own needs. And so money's not 
a problem yeah, for them. Concern. In that case, yep. I would recommend a versioning strategy rather than an unbundling strategy, if that makes sense. What's, what's a versioning strategy? A version is, is when you offer three different versions yep. of a similar service. So whereas unbundling takes your service, you might only have one service you can provide and it takes it, it breaks it into smaller chunks. A versioning mm. strategy is going to say every service I'm offering is a full service. I'm not mm. breaking into smaller chunks. What I'm doing is offering you different qualities of service, different levels of service. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. as an example, if we put it in simple terms, an unbundling strategy is where an airline like EasyJet or Ryanair or, or, or um, yep. you know Southwest Airlines, they basically say, well, we're breaking up this whole thing so you can buy a seat. But if you want to bring in luggage, that's extra. <laughs> yep. You want food, that's extra. You want entertainment, that's extra, blah, blah, blah. Well, as a versioning strategy is where you are all on the same plane, you've all got food, you've all got luggage on board. However, you've got different classes, you've got economy, business, and you've got first class. And so obviously, economy and business are getting better food. Uh, sorry, uh, premium uh, business yeah. and yeah, first yeah. class <laughs> are getting better food. They're getting more leg room. But everyone's on a plane, everyone's got their luggage, everyone's got something to eat. Versioning right? is an interesting... Yeah, that makes sense. Versioning is an interesting concept in architecture because it's sort of it's intellectual work, it's it's design work, it's creative work. And I think I'm just the architect in the back of my mind is going like, how would you ever sit down with a client and say we do like a slightly less good job of it? <laughs> is it really I guess that, that comes back to your earlier point about time is a factor and you know, you have to say to the client we spend more time on it and we're able to deliver a better service. Um so we're not yeah. necessarily proposing that we deliver a kind of consciously inferior service we just don't and not going to have that time is that what it's really about yeah it's funny because all architects when they look at this the immediate thing they do is say yeah well i can't deliver a bad service is that what exactly you're suggesting? i knew i knew it they're all thinking yeah it. <laughs> so that's not what we're suggesting what we're suggesting is it allows you to encourage people to actually see the value in a better service So as an example, you might provide a full service. You might do a very high end, uh, you know, let's say you're a residential architect, you do brand new single family homes, you do very high end, right? But, you know, is your service a lead or a bream sustainable service? Is it a passive house? Is it a well standard house? You know, there's all these different levels that we can achieve if somebody was willing to pay us a little bit more money because it's going to take more time, it's going to take more effort, right? So there is, we can have high quality and then high quality plus and high quality plus plus. Mm. And we can really start to show the client, you know, why they may want to pay more. And if you're working with a high-end client, then their ego, their, their enthusiasm is going to drive them to want to pay more because they'll see the benefits, whether it's, you know, simply having bragging rights, yeah. Um, or, or whether it's the, the comfort level that it provides or, or other things. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's always ways that you can offer a better and higher quality service, even if you've already got a, you know, an, a high quality service to start with. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, cool. I just want to quickly go back to something you touched on earlier before I kind of forget about it. But it was in this proposal process, okay, whether we're doing uh, first degree, second or third, um, but you were you were touching on a very realistic scenario of the amount of time that gets invested into providing a client with a proposal, scoping out a project, visiting, meeting, all those sorts of things. Um, 
you, you the way you described it, nothing's ever sounded more tedious <laughs> going through that whole process. Um, do you do you have a a point of view on how much time should be invested? I guess it's a how long's a piece of string type thing, but um, is there a kind of an ideal or optimal in your mind sort of way that a small practice should be approaching how much time they actually put into securing that new business? Um, or any ways that they can start shaving off any unnecessary aspects of that process that are common in the industry? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Once again, we are all doing what we have kind of been taught, yeah. um, either working in previous companies or, 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 you know, through our sort of formal training, the very limited business strategy we have. So we're all doing the same thing that we've been taught. And once again, this was a strategy that was very effective 20, 30 years ago. And I think it's important to go into that because I think if people can understand why it was effective then and mm. why it's not effective now, it will really help them. So what, what is the strategy? Well, look, first of all, we need to change the way we approach clients. Back in the day, 20 or 30 years ago, you only had competition in, in your neighborhood, so to speak, yeah. you know, in your town, in your city, or if you lived in a, in a remote part of the country, literally in your, you know, in your neighborhood. Um, and the reason for that was technology limited the competition, okay? In order to be able to design a building in, in let's say, in, in Melbourne, well, it really helped to actually be living <laughs> and working in Melbourne, you know, to be able to do that. Um, it also really helped to be registered in that part of the world. It also really helped um, to be able to go and visit the site with ease and visit the client with ease because all these things made, you know, made a big impact. But nowadays, because of technology, because of the internet, that's not the case. And it, and it works in two ways. One, we can send drawings automatically now. We don't have to put them in a tube and mail them off to a client <laughs> yeah. and wait three days and drive. It's an instant process. But the problem comes is that the same happens when it comes to getting information from the client. Back in the day, the client had to get the information through the architect. Why? Because it was too labor-intensive <laughs> to go on your own and try and find out all this information. You know, how does the permitting process really work? Now you look on look yeah. on the, uh, the the local government website, the local county website, and it'll tell you what it needs for a development application. You know, the client can go there, look at it, oh, this is everything we need, you know, to, to submit yeah. so we can get approval. You know, but back in the day, you actually had to have the architect tell you that. Otherwise, you'd have to go down to the local office, you know, building department office, ask them directly or call them up and find out, you know, being put on hold. And it's the same thing with a lot of things. It comes to pricing as well. Nowadays, a client can call very quickly, 10 seconds, Google, you know, how much does an engineer cost? How much does an architect cost? And within 10 seconds, you'll find sites uh, here in the United States as sites to say an architect is going to cost between 5 and 15% of yep. the uh, construction cost and things like this. So basically, the internet, the lack of fee scales has had this combination where nowadays, whether you like it or not, you are competing on a world stage. Um, and this has its pros and cons. So as such, architects need to change the way they do business. That old way of doing business of waiting for a client to contact you and then having a quick one-hour phone call with them, see if they're a good fit, and then offering to go and meet them free of charge. That was good when there was limited competition, but now you're going to be spending too much time, too much effort writing a proposal. So look, let's say that first initial phone call costs an hour of your time, right? And that's quite conservative. It takes an hour to talk to them. You know, yep. you've got to schedule it first. But once you schedule it, you've got to find out, you know, where is the project? What are their timeframes? What sort of budget? What are they looking to achieve? What do they know about you? 
And then if they're a good fit, you then go and meet them on site, right? So you've got an hour phone call, you've got perhaps half an hour drive time or commute time to go and meet them. You're going to have a couple of hours on site with them because you've got to impress them. Bit yep. of a dog and pony show, tell them everything you know, answer all their questions, show your portfolio, talk about your ideas, your aspirations. You've then got to go back to the office. So there's another half an hour. Then you probably stop and have a break for lunch. <laughs> then you think I've got to write the proposal now. Most people think they can write a proposal in about an hour. Okay. There's a recent study done in the UK, um, a workplace study, which found that the average employee was productive for approximately two and a half hours a day of an eight hour day. So what are they doing in the rest of the time? Well, they're attending meetings, they're answering phone calls, they're responding to emails, you know, they're talking around the water cooler, they're doing all these other things. Sometimes they're on social media as well. Yeah. So although we think we can write a proposal now, it doesn't happen now, it's going to take at least a couple of hours, then we've got to think about it, sleep on it, look at it again, then we've got to package it up, send it off to the client, blah, 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 blah. So you can see why it takes approximately 10 hours to submit a proposal to a client and get to the negotiation table. Now, you don't win every client. Most architects that we work with probably have somewhere between a 25, you know, if they're lucky, yeah. maybe a 50% conversion rate. So if it, if, if it takes you 10 hours to get to the negotiation table, let's say, and you only win, let's say, one in every four proposals, you've invested 40 hours before you actually win a project. So if your charge out rate, you know, was $100 an hour, that's $4,000, yeah. If your charge out rate is $200 an hour, then you're looking at $8,000 to win a client. So the first four or $8,000 that you earn from the client you do win is going towards paying for all those other clients. Now, once again, you know, technology has allowed us to change this whole process. And it's allowed us to be very specific about the clients we work with. It's allowed us to actually automate that that process of winning clients so we don't commit to them we don't go and spend time with them free of charge yeah um and and once again we can use choice architecture we can use second and third degree price discrimination at this stage in the relationship as well to have a much better outcome than most of us currently have now i should preface all this by saying if you currently meet clients free of charge and you win clients that way, whatever you're doing is working for you. If you're not upset by it, if you're happy with your approach, yeah. then you don't need to change it. As a consultant, what I'm here to do is tell you what opportunities are available to you and the work involved in achieving them um, and how to achieve them so that you can make a more informed decision about if it's, if it's something you want to pursue. Yeah. So in that sort of 10-hour process, do you think that the most uh, – talking about what you can automate, what you can eliminate, do you feel like it's more on the meeting and the communication side or more on the proposal uh, creation um, and uh, that sort of second half of the of, of, of the process or both, I guess, across the board? But what are some of the real sort of uh, low-hanging fruit, I suppose, things that can just be kind of gotten away from, gotten away with? Is it possible to avoid the – when obviously – Avoiding the maybe avoiding the site meeting of like what what can actually be taken out of that old school traditional process or automated in your in your mind. Well, look, what, what I would like to see, you know, architects who are suffering from just meeting too many people free of charge yeah. and not being valued. And part of the reason you're not valued when you meet free in charge is because human you know human emotions. We're all human beings. We have the same emotions. When somebody comes to you, to your site, to your home free of charge, they're not charging for it, subconsciously the message you're receiving is they want to try and win me over. They yeah. are, for lack of a better word, they are desperate for the work. They're keen yeah. for the work. 
So you as a client, when they come to you, you're thinking, okay, show me your dog and pony show. Show me what you've got. Impress me. You know, what have you got here? Let me show you, you know, tell me how that works. Tell me this. So as a client, you're sitting there just gathering information saying, I know you want to win this. So essentially as a design professional, you're, when you go to them free, you're bidding to try and win them. Mm. Okay. So although we all believe as design professionals, it's a good thing to do. We all think, no, it's the right thing to do. It's an honest, it's a fair, you know, it's an amicable thing. It's not actually very good from a business perspective. We're not sending the message we want to send. Mm. You know, other people do not, other professionals who have trained for five to seven years plus would not offer to come to your house free of charge. Yeah. You know, especially if they're in demand. So first of all, we need to, we need to understand the psychology of what's happened. Second thing we need to say is, okay, if there is a problem with this approach, if we're not enjoying the rewards or lack of rewards from this approach, what can we do about it? Well, once we understand the psychology behind it, the second thing, once we understand this idea of options and secondary and third degree price discrimination, mm-hmm. is when we have that initial call with the client, we need to start presenting options to them of how we can help them. The client has got a problem. You are a design service provider which can provide a solution. So it stands to reason that a lot of clients would probably be prepared to buy some of that solution from you, right, if it's presented in the right light. So what we would suggest is working out what is it that most interests your client at that early stage? What are the key questions they have? If it's a residential client, the typical questions they have, and this this is for people having a a remodel or an addition to an existing home as much as a brand new home, the typical questions they will have is, what can I do? You know, what is the possibility here? What are the potential of this site, this existing building? What am I allowed to do legally? You know, so what can I do? Second question is, you know, how long is this going to take? And the third question is how how much is it, you know, realistically going to cost? Yeah. So these are the typical questions. So instead of just meeting them for free and having a chat, what would it be like to actually propose to them that you could come to their site you could take some photos, take some measurements, go through your client questionnaire to truly and deeply understand what they're looking to achieve, and then go and talk to the local planning, the zoning department, and just make sure nothing has changed recently. And then mm-hmm. gather that information and give it back to the client in a report and include in that report the average construction cost for different types of construction, you know, and also a typical time frame for the process of designing and building that project and putting it in a report to them and then saying to the client, look, I I can do all this. We can meet, we can do that. It's going to take approximately, I don't know, eight hours. And there is a fee associated with that. Maybe the fee is a thousand dollars. I'm just making up a number. Yeah. Okay. Of course we wouldn't charge the client a thousand dollars. We'd charge them $997. (laughs) But that's a different discussion. Okay. So the fee would be that. And then we say to the client, how do you feel about that? Are these the sort of questions you have? Uh, These are sort of answers you're looking for. And you wait for them to respond. And they're going to respond in one of three ways. They're going to say, that sounds fantastic. When can we get you out here? Mm. Okay. Or they're going to say, hmm, I don't know what to do. You know, they're like, I don't know. Maybe I need to talk to somebody, my husband or my wife or my partner or whatever, whoever. Or they're going to say, well, you know, I don't think we're at that stage yet. We really just want to get to know you a little bit more and how you work and what you do. Okay, so now we've got some information on the client. We've presented an option for them. They've either said yes, 
they've said no, or they said they don't know. If they've said yes, great, we book a time, we go and do it. If they said they don't know, we explore it further. What answer, What questions do you have? Maybe I haven't hit the mark. What else would you like to know? Mm. What can we do? Would you, do you want to know what's in the report? You know, we, we can tell you what's in the report. We're going to go include a site plan. It's going to show you your existing conditions and where you're allowed to build, how close to the boundaries you can go. If you've got any, uh, we had a project once in Sydney with a historic, what was labeled a historic tree, believe it or not, in the backyard, which uh, impacted the um, the DA, okay, believe it or not. So we're going to find out these things. We're going we're gonna to map out on a plan where you can actually build, okay? We're also going to give you a massing diagram or an envelope study showing you how big the volume of this building can be because you might have thought, oh, I'm going to go out in the backyard and do X or Y or Z, but you might not have realized that that's got to be single story because of the neighbors, or it could actually be double story. You thought it had to be single story. Or vice versa. So what we're going to do is give you a massing diagram to show you how big the volume it can be. We're also going to include these other things. And then look, once we've got this report, you don't have to use us if you don't want to. Yeah. Okay, you can take that report and use it with however you want. But we would love the opportunity to work with you. And we'd love the opportunity to find out this information for you. Okay. So once again, hopefully that gives some clarification. Hopefully it turns them into a yes. Maybe they say, you know what? We're just not ready for that level of detail yet. What we really want to know is a little bit more about you, how you operate, and things like that. That's when you say, okay, absolutely no problem. When would you like to come to our office for a meeting? So what I'm doing here is I'm implementing a freemium pricing strategy. I've got a premium service, which provides a lot more information, a lot more detail, and a report the client can use moving forward. And there's a fee associated with it. If they're not ready for that information, then I've got a free service, hence the freemium, free and premium. I've got a free service, so they can come and meet me on my terms at my office. And there's yeah. a reason you want to do that. It's called the principle of consistency and commitment. You know, we want to get the client committing to us rather than us committing to the client. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, when we go and visit the client, we're going to have to spend money on a car or transportation and petrol. It's going to take time to get there. It's going to take time to get back. If we meet them in our office, we can just continue working until they show up. <laughs> yeah. And then we can present our, you know, one hour, let's look around the office, see what's going on. Let's look at an existing project, which is similar to yours. Let's talk about what you want to do, your means, methods, processes, timeframes, costs, and all that sort of thing. And at the end of that meeting, once again, we're like, well, now, are you ready for the pre-design service, the feasibility study, study, or the space planning study if you're an interior designer? Or maybe it's, um, you know, a a risk assessment, as some people like to call it. Whatever you want to call it, it's that pre-design service. Are you ready for that now? And hopefully, if they like what they see in the office, they like the way you work, they like you, then they're ready for that small commitment. Yep. So that's the way we would change it from the old strategy of going to meet them free of charge to the new strategy. Now, look, I understand this requires a whole shift in mindset. Yep. um, It requires confidence. If you've been giving away that service free of charge, the last thing you want to hear is somebody like me telling telling you you could get paid for it. It's annoying at best. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's annoying to hear that. I I get it. So what you need to do is have a deep look at is the process you're using really working for you? We have interviews with design professionals we've worked with where they've come back to us. And, you know, there's one guy we work with in the UK um, who's come back to us five years after he did our original training and uh, he did a whole 45 minute or maybe it's even an hour long interview with us. And he said, you know what, that pre-designed service, I now charge for it. And I actually get 10 to 15% of my annual revenue by just Mm -hmm. going to meet clients nowadays. 
And he says, I'm sure they respect me more, my time more and everything else more when they pay for that service. So it's it's an incredible shift in the psychology. But once again, you've got to try it to experience it, to really see how powerful it is. And if it doesn't work for you first time, it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It means that the way you presented it might not be quite right. Um, So if you need to learn more about that, then obviously talk to us and we'll show you exactly how to present it. Yeah, the pre-design thing can work. Sometimes it's hard to work out precisely why it doesn't work in some situations and does in others. I've, I've had clients that have instituted a pre-designed service uh, and they've gotten to a point where it's been so successful that they've even contemplated, you know, should I just do this all the time? Because <laughs> there's something nice about, you know, having a two-hour Zoom meeting with somebody and uh, getting paid very well for it and not, you know, having that, uh, you know, not having to take my work home with me really. I mean, it's quite quite nice and contained and it's a bit of a, a nice sort of change of pace from the regular stuff. It also, one of the appeals of it is that it really does take off that pressure that, that you need, that feeling that of, of that, that desperation that can sometimes creep in occasionally where it's like, I really do actually need to win this project and maybe I'm going to look at this client through rose-coloured glasses and just kind of hope, uh, you know, that this will work out well, but I do want this project so I have to take it on. Um, yeah. when, a, when a client, when an architect has quite a lot of, you know, these pre-designed bookings, you know, if we're going to call them that, a lot of options to consider plus revenue associated with that, it puts them in a much more relaxed position where they're able to really take a step back and go, is this really the right client? Um, maybe I should be pushing this client for a more premium service like Passive House or something. They really start to think of it in a much more strategic way when their yeah. basic kind of needs are sort of taken care of by a, a broader pool of clients that are paying smaller amounts of money for those initial services. So I've definitely seen it effective, but sometimes a client will try a similar structure, an architect will try a similar structure, and for some reason they just have trouble um, converting clients onto that package. And I've often kind of been a little bit kind of mystified by, well, what's the difference? I mean, they're very similar things. And, and so I wonder what are some of the ways that it can be um, – not sold properly or not sold well or framed, you know, not in the best light. I mean, is there anything that sort of you've come across that can, yeah. can lead to these offerings not going so well? Yeah, I, I would say there's two big mistakes that architects often make when it, when it, and it doesn't work for them. Um, and I think it's quite a simple fix once you understand what is. Number one is what you're offering to the client isn't of value to them. Okay. If you're saying, hey, I can come and do X, Y, Z for you and it's going to cost you money, but they don't value that. I think you nailed it. <laughs> that, that's, <laughs> I think that's the it. problem. But the biggest mistake we see is not the value. The biggest mistake we, be, we see is that architects don't have the confidence to do it. If you say to a client, hey, look, we could come and do this and we could come and do that. And there, I, there is a fear. I don't suppose you would like that service, would you? No, they don't. <laughs> they don't want it, no matter what you're offering, because you don't have the conviction and the passion. If you talk about it in a very animated way, in a very enthusiastic way, you know, yeah. if you say to a client, for example, look, this sounds like a fantastic project. In fact, we recently completed a couple of similar projects in your part of town, in your subdivision, in your neighborhood, in your region, in your county, wherever it is. And we'd be very excited to work with you. Now, look, what we would like to do is we'd like to come and meet with you. We'd like to sit down with you, really get to know how you work so we can define this scope more clearly. And what we're going to do once we've defined it, we're going to give you some options of things you can do so you're not just got one fee, one service. 
Okay, mm. but before that, we've got to define it. We've got to go through that with you. We also need to take some photographs of the existing conditions. Even as a brand new site, you know, greenfield site, nothing on it at the moment. We still need to go there and take a look at it. We need to do this. We might need to take some measurements. We might need to bring along our surveyor, or we might ling- need to bring along a planning expert in some situations. So you'll bring, mm. bring someone with you. You know, and then we're going to talk to the local planning department or whatever. We're going to do X, Y, Z. We're going to put it together in reports, okay? And this is going to tell you exactly what you can do. And by the way, did I mention, you know, when you get this report, you don't have to use us if you don't want to. You can take this report, 21. It'll have a very clearly defined scope for you. It'll also have the parameters and what you're allowed to do. You know, when you present it like that and somebody's, you know, nowadays, I don't know, what's what's the least amount a client is going to be spending? If it's an addition, they're going to be spending at least a hundred thousand Australian dollars, but probably a lot more. Oh, a lot more. Yep. You know, you yeah. know, so, so if it's a kitchen, a brand new kitchen, they're probably yeah. spending <laughs> fifty, sixty thousand Australian dollars or so. With or an more, architect, you know? yep. So so you know, this this thousand dollars is negligible. It gives you a chance to work with them, them a chance to work with you. But if you do not say it with passion, if you do not say it with conviction. If you say it like you don't really believe it and you're very uncomfortable about it, it's not going to work. So what do you do? Well, you practice. You practice what you're going to say. If you've got coworkers, it's awkward and uncomfortable as it is. (laughs) Go through the scenario. Train them. If that doesn't help you, find somebody else to actually, you know, do those calls for you. Now, look, a lot of um, architects and design professionals say, well, I like to go and meet the clients. You so know, I can I qualify like to meet, them and I work like out if their project them. looks good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So once again, if what you're doing is working for you, if you like that process and you win them over, you don't mind giving your time away for free, you don't mind presenting yourself and devaluing yourself in that presentation because you're able to win them because of your charismatic personality or your your experience. You know, your portfolio is so good that they're going to hire you anyway. Well, look, you might not need to do that, but nowadays. We're all working in a very, very competitive market. And so you need to change, typically change your approach if you're going to succeed. And a lot of uh, young architects that I talk to are just kind of starting out in their career, just started up their firm. You know, they're buzzing with enthusiasm. They just think they can outwork the system. They're like, as long as I work harder than everyone else, I will achieve it. And I always say, "I, I, I really like the passion. I really like the enthusiasm. I want to come back in five or seven years' time and see where you're at because the evenings, the weekends, after a while, they begin to drag, you know, uh, um, if you're not, you know, five years, seven years in, if you're not making the sort of money that you need to make to be able to live uh, a reasonable life wherever you live. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I've I've also seen the work that goes into the sales process become a real handbrake on progress in terms of marketing for some of my smaller clients. So if they've got a certain portion of time that they can spend on marketing each month, they will be initially investing that time and let's say it's, you know, 10 hours a month or something like that. And then it, it starts working for them and they or, or, or things start going well generally and they start getting kind of an increase in inquiries. But they start trying to service those inquiries with the same level of personal time investment that they 
were servicing inquiries when they had only one every few months or something. You know, they were yeah. they put it they got accustomed to putting in a lot of time. That's their that's their method. That's their habit. But once that number starts to pick up because your online marketing, your digital marketing starts becoming more successful, and you know when you when your digital marketing successful, as you know, I mean leads are kind of you know they're, they're yeah. a fairly frequent occurrence, and and you can't possibly treat them the same way that you are going to initially. But what I see can happen is they start spending so much time, their 10 hours per per lead, all of a sudden they don't have any time to do any marketing anymore. It, it's now completely consumed what, that, what time they had for marketing plus other things, their weekends, their personal life, their exercise, their you know time yeah. to think any of their discretionary time gets consumed by preparing, sending proposals, meeting potential clients. And all of a sudden the momentum completely comes off and they just grind back down to a halt and it's it's a process it's a cycle that i've seen a lot of small practices go through time and time again this kind of this right rise in momentum things start going well marketing's coming into effect and then it just all sorts of slides off stress burnout overwhelm so i see it as a real you know it's a it's a it's a real issue that people need to get to a pr- place where their process is more efficient but i think it, it doesn't necessarily, just because you're charging for it, it doesn't necessarily mean the process becomes quicker, but um, but perhaps it deters more of the less serious leads, right, or less serious prospects. Like in a way that getting people to pay is almost a really good qualifying step in, a, in and of itself, isn't it? Um, do you sort yeah. of see it that way? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. And I think you're, you're exactly right. When you do get your system set up and you've got your social media pumping out, um, you know, material, and then you do get more leads, the, the system becomes even more important because you've, yeah. you've got to, you've got to do the job of filtering out those tire kicker clients from those who are serious. Um, and even before you have that first phone call, the way we would recommend to do that is start off with a client questionnaire, which can be mm-hmm. automated nowadays through software like Calendly and, and yep. software like that, you know, when a client goes to book a call, they can fill out a questionnaire before they book the call, mm-hmm. which gives you vital information about whether you think they're going to be useful or not. Um, and look, because of things like the internet, uh, we're now able to outsource a huge amount of work. So um, the biggest challenge for any business, but especially for architects and design professionals, is you start off because it's something you're passionate about doing, which is design, but it's very quickly going to snowball into a nightmare if you can't actually kind of understand and see the different segments of the business and employ or outsource or automate these systems so that you actually have time for the design if that's what you're passionate about doing. Yeah. So yeah, this this whole um, winning that client over before you ever present the proposal with the options in it, um, that process has got to be you know analysed in detail and streamlined yeah. as much as possible, which is very easy to say. It's, yep. it's quite challenging to actually do um, if you don't have, you know, a business background. Yeah, it's interesting. I also like what you touched on there about this idea of if they're making commitments to you, if the client is making commitments to you, that's a good thing because that's going to propel them in the direction towards working with you with each small commitment that they make, right? Whereas if you're committing in the opposite direction, you're going to be more compelled to sort of compromise to work with them. Um I, I, I think there's a really um, there's a book that touches on this subject a lot. Um, Caldini's book Influence, and yes. he and it, the chapters and chapters about commitment and consistency and the fact that once we start doing something and taking action and all those sorts of things, we're much more likely to just keep on going in the direction that we're heading. So I, I, I hadn't really thought about it that 
that we are inadvertently starting to commit to that client with every little action we take generously uh, for them. But but you did touch on it. I think that um, architects don't necessarily view it or they might be viewing it on a certain level as winning that work, but I think that they also see it from the perspective of, I, I, I want to be select. I want to find projects that I can be sort of inspired by, or are going to be these great creative opportunities. And so, for some architects, it's it's you know a bit of it's a bit of an assessment of the opportunity as much as anything. But really, I guess it's about not overdoing that, right? Like making sure that you've got perhaps the right questions in your surveys that can help to determine that project quality or give you those signs. But I hear this often from architects, which is I just can't avoid that conversation. I ultimately need to spend a fair bit of time speaking to them. Maybe it is just unavoidable on a certain level. Um, but what but what you're suggesting, I think, is create some more automated, more efficient steps before you let people get to that point, right? It doesn't it yeah. doesn't have to go straight to taking up your time. Well exactly. And and I'm here to help architects um, get better fees get more conversions and reduce their scope creep problems. These are the three issues I help with. So yeah. maybe that's not the architectural firm that a lot of architects want mm. um, by that. I think as an architect, you have to decide, you know, what sort of firm do I want? Do Am I happy to, to live off word of mouth referrals and, you know, have peaks and troughs in my workflow, but I enjoy what I'm doing and I'm happy with it? Or am I trying to make this a very efficient business that, that kind of maximizes uh, my return on my, in, on, on my investment. Yeah. And I think it's one of those really challenging de- decisions that each individual firm owner, you know, which each individual architect at some point in their career has to face. You know, what do I want to do? Do I want to work on half a dozen projects that I've hand-selected every year? Or do I want to work on a dozen of projects that people are paying me, you know, good fees and good, good yeah. quality projects on. So I think it's just a decision. And I think inevitably, you might not consciously make that decision, but subconsciously, it comes through in the actions. And it will come through year after year in your business, because you'll end up, you know, your, your day to day activity will become week to week activity, which will become month to month activity. So yeah. if you don't set up the systems, inevitably, you can only manage so many clients, you can only talk to so many clients, and you can only win so many clients. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I think everyone would be like uh, appeal, find the idea that you touched on earlier about possibly creating, lifting the ceiling on how high that service level can get. I mean, everybody's just found some equilibrium point where I provide the service that people will pay for um, and their systems of of determining what will people pay for are fundamentally not ideal, right? So there's always probably room for those clients to be willing to pay for a higher level of design, a higher quality, more time, those the certifications that you mentioned, a more sustainable project, better products, better materials, all those sorts of things. Um, Every architect, that's their dream. I feel, <laughs> you know, yeah. even if they're not thinking so much on the business side, if they if they just have their designer hat on, that's what they really want. They want that client that is going to let, uh, not, maybe not let them is the right word, but pay them to do these things that the architect knows will bring so much to the project. So, I feel like psychologically, if you can get that as your mindset, as your driver or as your motivator, even if you're not motivated by money or business as much, you know, maybe you are more just motivated by those creative opportunities, then that's how you can try to look at it, I suppose. Do you think it's helpful to try and find like, that's my, that's my mindset or, you know, that's my motivation? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. You've got to have something to shoot for. You've got to, you've got to have that goal. Um, we find this might be interesting to me. We find fifty percent of clients, approximately fifty percent, will upgrade when given a compelling opportunity to do mm. so. So if you just offer your client a single fee and a single service, let's say you're offering them a lump sum fee because that's the most common approach nowadays, uh, a fixed rate. So you're, you, you know, let's just make up a number, $10,000, right? We find that if you gave them a reason to spend more, then 50% of them will spend more at the start of the contract. And the 50% who don't on the start of the contract tend to, you know, 50% of them will upgrade during that contract as they become more committed, more involved, and as the project comes to life. Yeah. And look, it doesn't have to be based around sustainability. There's there's just, you could base it around technology. You know, you can mm. you can say to the client, look, we can do everything we need to do. We can go and get, submit for your DA and everything else. We're going to do everything in CAD and AutoCAD like everyone does. It's going to be two-dimensional. However, if you would like the virtual reality walkthrough, if you'd like to see all this stuff live yeah. with the goggles on and everything before you ever break ground, before you ever do that, just imagine the burden it removes from the client to be able to do that, right, before they spend the money breaking ground. I can actually walk into the rooms and touch and feel and see this sort of stuff um, to some degree. So that obviously gives you an opportunity to offer a premium service. Now, your service hasn't changed at all. The way the client is experiencing the service has changed. So it doesn't have to be about sustainability. And we yep. see the same thing when working with developer clients, commercial clients. They're not that interested in design their primary primary interest is making money they're mm-hmm. building for profit they're not going to live in it they're not going to work <laughs> in it typically they're going to rent it out they're going to sell it they're going to lease it they want to make money so the sort of options we find that work well with commercial clients who are financially sensitive is to give them things like a success fee a success fee is when you deliver a certain goal when you achieve a certain goal a milestone you're rewarded with a bonus so what you are doing is you're reducing the financial burden at the start of the relationship while they're trying to get the approvals, when they're trying to get people to finance the project. Excuse yeah. me. But you're being rewarded later on. And there's a lot of nuances and details to a success fee, which one needs to understand before one ever implements one. Uh, but what I'm trying to get across here is there isn't just one way of doing it. Sure. There are yeah. many, many ways. And that is that is the beauty of this system is it adapts yep. and can be changed depending on the firm. I. Continuing on that on that topic of I want I want to find ways to get architects excited about business <laughs> and so uh, and doing and doing business well, improving their system. So um, you touched on something there that actually gave me a little bit of a flashback to when I first saw you speak in 2012 in Perth, which was at the time I remember you saying something along the lines of, um, you know, you'll make physical models I think you're talking about at the time and the possibility that maybe you could even provide the option to a prospective client would you like to pay extra and we can build a physical model of your of your home for you to look at and I remember thinking at the time oh my goodness being paid to make physical models I mean that's just (laughs) unheard of that's a that's kind of a, a cost of the design process usually that the firm bears or what's you know more common is nobody makes physical models anymore because the client isn't paying for it now. Maybe the phys- maybe it's more the VR experience now that, that that is kind of more in line with what the client could be looking for. Because ultimately, as you mentioned earlier, it has to be relevant and compelling to them to be paid for. No point proposing something that they don't care about. But this idea that maybe, well, for a start, if firms aren't doing these kinds of added experiences or added aspects of the design process that the client benefits from, what do you think about them starting to? offer these as part of their matrix 
Um, is that a, is that a possibility? Uh, and secondly, I'm also interested in your your kind of take on firms that already do these things and then never charge their client for it and don't attribute any. It's just almost like a in-house overhead. It's not at all seen as part of what's being sold to the client. So maybe could would it possible just get your thoughts on that and these kind of things like VR, like renders, like models, like this kind of these creative assets that kind of come come yeah. out in a project. So once again, you've got to know who you are as a firm and who your clients are. If you're dealing with frugal clients, yeah, people that buy, that are buying based on price, yeah, because they've got a very limited budget then this is when you really unbundle. Like I said, again, you unbundle things. So you can unbundle the model. Mm. You can take that out, that sort of thing. If you're not, if you're at a higher level in the industry and maybe you've got a big team, you know, of, of, of you know, a staff of 10 plus people or something like that, and your fees are reasonable, then there's certain things that should be included and be seen part of it. So as an example, you know, if you're going to fly Etihad Airways or Qantas Airways, you know, from Melbourne to London, you know, you're going to ex- expect to have some food on that plane. It's 24 <laughs> yeah. hours of flying. There's certain things that need to be included. You know, well, as if you're taking a flight from Melbourne to Sydney, then mm. having food is a nice to have. It's, it's an added extra, you know, and, and and you can pay for it if you decide you want it on that 45-minute yeah. flight or whatever it is. So this is the things. There isn't one general rule that applies to everyone. You know, I used to work mm. in a very famous firm in London um, called Foster and Partners, we weren't going to unbundle these sorts of things at that level, but at the same time, we weren't on, we weren't going to offer somebody a you know a, a price to take them to DA only. Every option we offered them was the full Monty. It was the full thing from start to finish, um, and that's because it's they're at that caliber, they're at that level in the industry. Yeah, which just brings a thought to mind really quickly. You know, let's say a firm is not at that highest level in their market, in their city, in their in their niche, they're at that lower level. They want to get to that higher level, but to get there, maybe they it, sometimes people's view of themselves, right? So you've got this maybe one person practice who does have medium to low below average budget clients who maybe are a little bit more frugal in their sort of their mindset, but that architect is kind of competitively comparing themselves, or in terms of how they are thinking about how they should approach things, they're comparing themselves to like. A famous architect or a, or a top firm in the country or somebody who has you know a monograph on the coffee table they're they're sort of maybe a little bit distorted in their thinking about things um, which is probably the first issue that they need to solve but in terms of actually um, does 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 being more realistic about your position and the strata that you're at in the market and then developing a strategy for where you're at at the moment the fear there is does that then does the concrete then set and then I then get stuck in this strata that I'm in at the moment? Or how do you sort of see it as a process where I can start to maybe improve my situation at my current level with my current crop of clients? How does that fit into a kind of process of improving the quality or caliber of those clients or or moving up the run? Maybe not we're saying, maybe not improving the clients necessarily, but changing the clients, moving to a different group that we maybe want to, you know, work with more. Um is it okay to just go, okay, at the moment I'm at this level and I should really have the best strategy for this level? Or how do you kind of see that that dilemma or that kind of stress that an architect might have? So, so this is the, you know, the, like the, the, the big problem with running your own firm is that you are going to end up working with a client and then you do a good job for them. 
So they refer you, so you get other clients that's similar yep. to the project you just did. Mm-hmm. So you have to be very careful about which projects you take on, obviously, because if you take on a project you don't really want to do before you know where you are, that is all you're doing. But then you've got to balance that with being able to live, to actually yeah. being able to, you know, pay the bills, feed yourself, put a roof over your head. So it's this constant balance. And that's why the first year or two years or three years of the business are really, you know, a huge amount of work because essentially you've got to build this whole perception of who you are um, because perception is reality. <laughs> you know, if people perceive you to be incredibly good, then the reality is, well, you are incredibly good because what is good anyway? You know, what is incredibly good anyway? Yeah. So, in a, you know, in all honesty, so the first years you've got to, I think you've got to be realistic about where you are, but you've got to be a dreamer. You've got to have this concept of this is where I want to go. Unless, you know, you're more than happy to stay in your local community doing the projects that you've, you've won in your first year. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what you want. You know that. That's great because it's very easy to get a lot more of that. But if you want to build it, you know, if you're starting out on your own, you're working from home and you're thinking, you know, in the next year I want to have a partner, in the next five years I want us to, you know, have a half a dozen to a dozen people in the office and have a, you know, a downtown or a CBD uh, office place and all these things. If that's what you're shooting for, then obviously – you might not know exactly how to get there yet, but you you need to focus on where it is that you want to be going, but still be realistic about the day-to-day. And that is the challenge for all entrepreneurs, I think, for all self-employed people. Um, so the good news is the second and third degree price accommodation can help with that because obviously it gives people an opportunity to pay you more and ask mm. for a higher service when in the past they wouldn't have. But you also, systemization is going to be key to your business, you need to think about yourself in the position you want, not the position you have. So you need to think, you know, I'm winning these projects now. Who can I employ to actually go and do them, do the work? Because I need to be focusing on winning those bigger clients. And to win the bigger clients, I need to know where they hang out, what their pain points are, and how I can reach them either through social media or joining a local club, organization, or something of that nature or committee. Um, And that's going to take a lot of time. So you need to you know, this is ex- exactly why it's so difficult for sole practitioners to survive and, and build a business is because those early years are really challenging. And I mean, even year five and 10 and 15 and 20. I used to say when I worked in London, although at that time the company was 40 years old, I said, man, it, it, it works, it operates like it's 12 months, 18 months old. <laughs> I mean, when I was employed at the company, one of my first jobs was to, to create a non-disclosure agreement with our lawyers uh, and things like that. And uh, the question for me was, well, well, don't they already exist? And he said, well, we have something, but we, we're not particularly happy with it. So we would like something fresh and new. And and that was, you know, part of my initial work was trying to create some new contracts and documents and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, you know, maybe that's 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 interesting that sort of the the director or the, or the owner of the business needing to free themselves up to, to be thinking, um, to be to be looking for those new clients, to be working on those things. If they do have that dream of getting the business to that next level, they want things to change. Um, how you know, in terms of the different architects that you that you meet with, you get to see lots of different approaches. Um, you know, amongst the range out there, are there certain sort of habits um, or maybe um, you know 
indications that you get from architects who seem to be doing that quite well. Is there any secret to it? I'm always trying to figure this out. How do the architects that seem to do business so well, how do they do it? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, and in a way that sometimes appears quite effortless. Uh, yeah. And I've had a few on the podcast and I've always been impressed and think, you know, it's, it's amazing that they've had time to sit down and generate so many ideas and strategies and then implement them and come up with plans and systems and it's crazy. Um, yeah, is there anything you've yeah. noticed? <laughs> it's, um, I, I, think, I think there's definitely a strategy one can have to be successful. It's usually doing what is contradictory to what your emotions are telling you to do. Your emotions mm. often let you down. Your emotions often lead you to do the easier thing, the simpler thing. That's why it's always quite good to have a mentor because a mentor will push you um, and say, you know, do you, 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 you're undercharging. <laughs> you should be charging more, yeah, yeah. you know, and these sorts of things. So my, my summary is this, and I'll keep it quick. I think, first of all, and, and I'll keep it quick because people won't like hearing this, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll say it anyway. First thing is nowadays competition is massive. You have to have a niche. You have to specialize in something. Why specialize? Well, many reasons, but essentially if you specialize in something, it's easier to reach your target audience because you know exactly who your audience is. If you generalize in a lot of things, it's very difficult to reach your target audience. Okay. The other thing is if you specialize, you get paid a premium. Why? Because you can very quickly become the best at what you do. It's very difficult to be the best as a generalist. It's very, or a lot easier to be the best as a specialist. And the reason I say most architects don't like that is because they don't want to specialize in one thing. Mm. They want the variety of work. They want to have different types of projects and that sort of thing. And once again, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But if you come to me, it's usually because you want to make more money. And yep. I'm going to tell you things you don't necessarily want to hear. And one of those is going to be specialized. I love it. Okay. And then do things that other architects that your competition do not want to do. And usually those things revolve around marketing and sales and being slightly different in that approach. We recently had um, a young, um, sorry, an interior designer on one of our mastermind groups um, who said she was, she had a, one of her houses was going to be on the local sort of architectural tour. So what she did was she went old school. She went and printed over, printed out a load of postcards. She sent these postcards around the local community, yep, inviting people to come and see the open house on the tour. Um, and there'd be some drinks and nibbles and stuff like that there. Anyway, a host of people did come. They took advantage of that opportunity to come along. She then reported back that she got three or four new clients purely by doing the old fashioned postcard through yep. the letterbox approach. So, you know, that takes a bit of legwork. It takes a little, you know, a bit of discomfort, sending somebody out, going out yourself, knocking on doors, posting it through the letterbox, that sort of thing. But these things can achieve or yield some great results um, if you do what other people don't do. If everyone was sending the postcards, it wouldn't be effective. But when you're the only one doing it, it yeah. all of a sudden becomes effective. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. The specialization um, is, is, is a tricky a very, very tricky concept when it comes to architects. Um, yeah, no, and, and I guess it's kind of, uh, it's, it's sort of understandable. I think one, one, one of the things that's quite, um, you know, taking their side for a second, not, not to say that I disagree, I completely agree with you, but they, there is a little bit of a shortage of role models in terms of specialized uh, architecture firms, you know, in terms of the, in terms of their the platform or the pedestal that we put certain architects up on top of, um, 
almost without exception, they're generalists. So you can be forgiven for sort of thinking that that's kind of the path to success, especially if, you know, that's what an architect is kind of aspiring to be like. But the problem is, is that the people that are making the most money are usually pretty under the radar and they're not the architects that you read about in the magazines necessarily. Um, you know, they're, they're the ones that are just running really, really successful small businesses, aren't they? And and that's it's again that comes back to your point you raised earlier which i think was great which is it's ultimately going to be a decision for you to make what yeah. what's your goal what are you actually aspiring to do exactly exactly and i'll give you two examples of of specialized architects who've done extremely well two two examples of you know each end of the spectrum so um obviously i work foster partners norman foster back in the day actually specialized in industrial buildings when he first started out i don't mm. know if you've ever watched the documentary yeah. called How Much Does My Building Weigh, Mr. Foster? Yep. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, you know, when he started out and there was a lot of competition, so he decided to go into industrial buildings because nobody else seemed to be doing that much. It'd be easier. The other thing he did was very quickly on, um, he recognized that he needed to go international in his approach yep. because if he stayed national, then he was going to be subject yep. to the ebbs and flows. Yep. So that, that's one example at one end of the spectrum. The other example is a residential architect by the name of Sarah Suzanka. Um, she she works in purely residential, um, single-family homes. And um, 40, probably approximately 40 years ago now, she started out, she had a small practice, I think it's just her and a partner. Um, they then built that practice to over 40 people, mm. okay? And they did it by specializing um, in residential homes only. And she used to go along to local um home and garden shows, and she would give a presentation on what makes a house a home. So she gave a presentation on what is it about a building that makes it comfortable and enjoyable to live in it. Now, as architects, as design professionals, we all know, we've been trained in this, but very few of us actually articulate that to our clients in a way that the clients are willing and ready to receive it. Mm. She obviously did this. She became extremely successful to build a business that that big. She actually ended up writing a book called The Not So Big House, which became an international bestseller. She ended up being on Oprah Winfrey, of all things. <laughs> so it just goes to show that, you know, specializing in 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 one aspect of it to start your career, you know, is a really good sort of springboard, if you like, to get it going and get those clients in and get things running and have the um, consistency of clients coming through the door and also getting paid the premium fee because yeah. if you're the best at what you do, then there tends to be a queue at your door and price doesn't tend to be so that's, such an important issue. That's so interesting. There is actually, there's a, you know, when you actually think about it that way, you look at, because if you looked at Norman Foster now, you'd go, well, Foster's not a specialist. He's like the the arch generalist. He's doing absolutely everything, well, you know, in a, to a degree. But what you don't realize is that, you're looking at kind of the end result, right? You're not looking at yeah. what what happened during that initial growth period where that architect really focused on a particular thing, became the best at it, um, became internationally renowned for that, and then springboarded into a wide variety of opportunities. Once they were noteworthy, well known, they, they started to grow out naturally from that area that they were just focusing on initially. So. I think that's an important distinction. It doesn't have to be like Foster and Partners only does industrial buildings for the rest of time. <laughs> but once you're Foster and Partners, great, you can start to ex- you will start to explore other opportunities that as 
as you sort of uh, see fit. But still probably at any time, I mean, with your experience in a company like that, at a given time, were there still sort of maybe niches or verticals that they were focused on still? Like in a way, their attention was almost laser focused on maybe we really want to do airports in the Middle East and that's our kind of focus at the moment. Did they still have that approach of sort of expanding over time, even as a large firm, that idea that you still want to pick an area and kind of focus your energy on it? I, I mean, I'm sure if you ask different employees, they'd have a different opinion on this. But my yeah. opinion was they they focused on what their clients really wanted, understanding what their clients really wanted. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was brought into the firm to write fee proposals, okay? And when I first arrived, they told me, now, we only do architecture, right? So when yeah. you write this proposal, every other consultant, including the cost consultant, is not included in our proposal and is to be appointed directly by the client. So that includes the engineer and everyone. Okay. After we lost some projects, you know, we started to analyze why did we lose these projects? And, you know, most people think, oh, if you're Norman Foster, surely you just put a proposal, they accept it. Not the case. <laughs> you know, we're always competing against the Richard Rogers, the Zaha Hadids, and yep. every other star architect out there. So, you know, we started to analyze these things and we recognized that some clients really valued having one point of contact, you know, one point of responsibility. And so the question became, well, how can we as a firm who, you know, historically all we've done is architecture, how can we deliver what the client wants and manage our risk at the same time? We ended up responding to that by offering joint venture agreements where we had joint, joint venture with an engineer um, and we would submit a joint proposal to the client so that it came in as one proposal for architecture and engineering and had sort of one point of co uh, contact, one point of responsibility. Mm. Now that then developed, after I left, I noticed that Foster & Partners developed their own engineering department. So yeah. they took it even one step further. And this is one of the incredible things about working there was, like I said earlier, it felt like it was a 12, 18 month year old firm. And that was exactly what it was. They didn't tend to live, you know, on what they had been doing. They were always looking to reinvent, mm. to, to try, try new things, to do things different, to try and, you know, demonstrate their unique selling proposition more to mm. the client so they could win those new works. So they never rested. Um, so would that's, be my, so that's interesting that, that USP is not something that was Foster and Partners since day one has had X USP and that's the USP we take to the market every day, every week, every year. <laughs> it's going right now, there's a gap. There's a niche. There's something that's been. There's an unmet need here, and and their and their USP is kind of evolving over time, and uh, it's not something that's static that never changes. That, and and I guess is that is that kind of is that kind of correct or or way of looking? Sort of, at? I mean, I think their USP was probably just challenging the, the the norms with everything when it came to design. So it didn't matter whether it was a bridge, you know, a building. Yeah. Um, an airport or port or whatever it was, I think it was always about challenging it and trying to use the latest available materials, technology and so forth to create yeah. um, the best solution to that design problem as possible. Um, so I don't know if that's ever changed, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I do know that the way they, you know, run the business is obviously, or in the brief time I was there, changed dramatically. Yeah, interesting. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much good knowledge. I feel like people are going to have to re-listen to it a few times to pick up on everything. And then they can go and watch some of your other interviews and uh, and and get some amazing resources off your website as well. So just do you want to just like kind of briefly touch on some of the things that they can go and get um, sure, maybe on your sure. site and yeah. 
what I'll do is I'll give you a link. We have a free 45-minute CPD mm. uh, or CE, depending on where you live in the world. It's either yep. continuing professional development or continuing education. Um, it gives you one point of, of one point. It uh, comes with a certificate. And it's based around five of the biggest mistakes that design professionals make when writing a proposal. It's based on the psychology of design fees. So if you like psychology of design fees, I think you'll really love that. I'll we'll share a link with you, Dave, yeah. um, so that you can let your members know about that. Yeah. Um, and generally, the way we help our clients is in just three simple ways. Um, first of all, for the last decade, and I think this is how we first met, we train architects, interior designers, and landscape architects, and building designers around the world on how to write successful proposals. And we have a training course. If you'd like to learn more about that, I will give you a link and you can schedule a call with me to discuss your needs and situation and what the course offers. Um, the other thing we do is we help design professionals with the psychology, with their own mindset. Earlier on, you heard me talking about that pre-designed service, and a lot of architects yeah. don't feel confident enough to do it. They don't know if they should. They don't know how to make it work. We offer mastermind groups. In those mastermind groups, you get an opportunity to see what your peers are doing. You know, you need to discuss their ideas and, and the, the processes yeah. they use and what's working and not working. So we can also um, invite you to a mastermind group meeting. We have our first one starting in Australia on the first Wednesday of next month. Okay. Uh, so that will be, what are we in, July? That'll be August. Yep. Um, and then the third and final way we can help you is we can work one-on-one with you. Um, if you'd like, we can take a look at your proposal. We can go through it with a fine-tooth comb. There's 15 things we look for in a successful fee proposal. We can measure how you're doing on all 15 items and get back to you and discuss what you need to do to improve it. We can also improve it for you if you'd like us to write it. So three ways. We can train you, we can introduce you to a mastermind group, or we can work one-on-one with you. Before you decide on any of those, I'd recommend booking a call with me and I'll give you a link to book a call so we can discuss your situation in more detail. Perfect. Three options and an initial call. I love it. Perfect. Thank you very much, Ian. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, that was my conversation with Ian Motley from Blue Turtle Consulting. If you'd like to learn more about Ian and Blue Turtle Consulting, you can visit blueturtlemc.com. Their website has loads of free resources to help you get started. You can also sign up for the Blue Turtle Fee Proposal Fundamentals CPD course or schedule a call with Ian if you need more personal help. I've included links to both of these resources in the show notes as well as on my blog at vanityprojects.com. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please make sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every second week. It also helps architects to find the show and benefit from these conversations. So I really appreciate it when you subscribe in your favorite podcast app. If you have any feedback or questions from this episode, you can get in touch at dave at vanityprojects.com. I love hearing from you. And if you'd like to learn more about me, Dave Sharp, you can visit vanityprojects.com to check out my blog, join over 5,000 other architects on my email list who receive my weekly emails, or learn more about my marketing coaching services for architects and book a free 15-minute call to discuss your situation and how I can help you. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.